Hi, I'm Ambika Gotham Pai. I'm a writer and the chief strategy officer of an ad agency called Mechanism. I'm a mom of two little babies and the sort of person who just cannot stop thinking. You are listening to Corner Office Breakdowns, a podcast that reconciles humanity and the workplace. Here we dive into conversations that usually happen in whispered tones or behind closed doors and bring them to the center, contemplating and breaking down the way leading and living have historically been done and rebuilding them together. Corner Office Breakdown sits at the intersection of business and leadership, equity and emotion, parenthood, womanhood, personhood, and as crazy as it sounds, the meaning of life. All of the guests you will hear from are people who have fundamentally changed my outlook. They may shift yours too. Thank you so much for being here. I hope you like this podcast. I hope you love it. I hope you share it. And I hope you subscribe. Motherhood. (sighs) Motherhood is kind of my favorite topic to dive into after having both my kids, but not favorite in the sense that it is enjoyable or fun. Favorite in the sense that it's very healing and I know it is making me better and potentially helping other people too. It's like a really fucking hard workout. which I just did today and I never do, where you somehow become way more focused on the end point, the end goal than all of the potential pain and suffering that goes into it. I have to say everybody's pregnancy and postpartum journeys and stories are incredibly different. This set of stories that you'll hear in my conversation today with Lindsay tend to be on the darker side, the more challenging side, the sadder side. And I just want to give out a trigger warning to anyone who has been struggling that this conversation isn't necessarily the easiest. It wasn't the easiest to engage in and it likely won't be the easiest to listen to. But what I do think it will do is it will help a lot of us who have experienced feelings of isolation, depression, fear, loss of self. It'll help a lot of us feel like we aren't the only ones. And I hope it will take out some of the loneliness and isolation that seems to accompany motherhood in this day and age in America. So I'm not going to say I hope you enjoy this because that's not quite the word, but I hope this gives you something and I hope you walk away feeling like your experience, while very much your own and very individual, isn't necessarily all that different from many of the women who have come before you and live alongside you. And I hope it also encourages you to reach across the room, the screen, the country, the world, and provide support and love for the mothers in your life, whether they are mothers with children, mothers without children, pregnant mothers, young mothers, older mothers, 
all of them because the support is critical and it is what this conversation is all about. Lindsay Waking is the head of strategy at Nonfiction Research and the author of The Invisible Weight, a study that dives into the uncensored emotional experience of pregnancy, what they are calling the invisible weight, and how the U.S. healthcare system fares under the needs of that weight. The research was done in collaboration with Twill. In her time at Nonfiction, she has also authored America's Secret Playlists, a report on the secret lives hidden within Spotify playlists, and Saving America from the News, a study of what Americans really want from journalism. Her research has influenced a Megan Thee Stallion song, a Super Bowl commercial, and a short documentary on fatherhood. So Lindsay, the, I feel like the last time you and I spoke was about the invisible weight research that you were doing at work. Yeah. And was I pregnant? I think I was pregnant with my second and it was early days. And so not a lot of people knew. And with you, I was just like, here's everything that's on my mind and every aspect of my experience because you set out to do this research to really understand um, the reality of what women go through during pregnancy specifically, is that it? Or like in the process of getting pregnant, being pregnant and mothering? Yeah, we wanted to focus on pregnancy specifically. We did hit a little bit before and a little bit after, but um, you know, there's been a lot more conversation about postpartum. And so we kind of wanted to look at before, before that period hits, um, mm -hmm. and what's really happening in the transition phase. Um, and, and that there hasn't, there was been a lot less conversation about like what that emotional and mental and spiritual mm -hmm. transformation looks like for people. Yeah. It's interesting, you know, Everybody tells you a few books to buy when you are pregnant, right? Emily Oster, she's incredible. And I use that book as like my bedside Bible, um, even though I don't have a Bible and I've never had one. That's just a reference. <laughs> <laughs> and um, what to expect when you're expecting, which is like mm -hmm. the classic. Yeah. And what those two books do is they sort of guide you through the experience of pregnancy. Like they tell you um, what what to expect in your first trimester, like morning sickness, cramping, spotting. Yeah. And it's very sort of um, factual. Like it's like yeah. it's like a guidebook. Um, but what is completely void from that is any sort of expression of the emotional experience that you are also going yeah. through. And I think that's one thing your research did so, so beautifully, um, is really capture the emotional state of people as they navigate pregnancy and postpartum. You did get into that a little bit. Yeah. Um, 
but the this um thesis of your work that the uncensored uncensored experiences of pregnancy really clash against the narratives that are out there in the world um really helped to blow this research open i think because you were almost using these like rose-colored narratives as your enemy and building against that. So can you tell us about the process of really starting to understand these uncensored experiences and what you found was most different from the narratives out there? Yeah, yeah, I'd love to. Um, yeah, when we began, I think we often began this research like we we normally do, which is like, what are the dominant narratives that people have in their head and their heart? What do they get on social media? that sets their expectations for what an experience is going to be like. And I think um, with pregnancy, even though it's like a cliche, everyone's, everyone still, that we talk to still seems to walk into it with this, you know, idea that it is this beautiful, empowering experience and mm-hmm. that um, it's the happiest months of your life um, as a woman. And, mm-hmm. and for some people that's true. Uh, and so it's not that, it's not that that truth isn't, um, is it is it real but I I often like to think it's not the it's not the only truth and yes um and and because of that expectation is so high uh you know so many of the women we spoke to just like slammed into a wall like head first into a wall during um during pregnancy with all of these different experiences that no one talks about no one told them about they had no context for if it was normal yeah. um and I think like you said like there we we get more prep for like the physical experience like you can sign up to the bump and they'll tell you like yes uh you know what to expect on week eight uh but no one tells you to expect like uh just unrestrained crying spells on week eight or yeah <laughs> like definitely grief that comes from like losing your sense of identity um yeah. or like I think there's just so many different the, the fear like the overwhelming fear um of of if the pregnancy is going to be successful or if you're going to lose the baby or um or just not being able to make sense of why you're feeling the way you are and having these intense dark spells and i think mm-hmm. um what was just like what was shocking was just how common it was and how everyone um still thought like is this me is there something wrong with me mm-hmm. um and you know like there's a there's a spectrum of it, of experience right like almost every woman I spoke to had, had some, you know, very difficult, dark emotional experience during their pregnancy. And for some, it was a few days for some, it was, it was months for some, it was the entire process. Um, and I think, I think there's a lot of pressure. Um, women expressed a lot of pressure to not, to not talk about it because you don't want to scare people. You don't want to make people feel like you're ungrateful for the experience you don't want to freak your partner out. Uh, yeah. There's so many reasons to like, not, not talk about it. But then I think the, the loneliness that, that people express that creeps in when you feel like you have to hold that, hold that back um, was, was profound and often made the experience even worse. Yeah. I feel like if I didn't share a bit of my experience here, I would not be doing what I want to do with this podcast. So I mean, the research that you did for me was the most important piece of research I have ever encountered. 
And I'm a strategist. I've read thousands and thousands and thousands of pieces of research. I've done a lot of research on my own that I've been really proud of, but there was just something about this that struck such a deep, deep, deep chord with me and also felt so needed in like almost a desperate way. Like there, there's such a desperation um, around being understood in this experience and such a lack of understanding and empathy from the world around you. And, you know, as I was telling you a little earlier, I went into the experience of getting pregnant, having a baby, totally blind to the realities of it. You know, I was one of the first among my friends, um, among my, like my close, close friends to have a baby and, I was not expecting it to go the way it went. And so, you know, my husband, Abby, and I decided to have a baby. <laughs> like literally one day we're like, okay, let's try. <laughs> and um, I got pregnant and I didn't know I was pregnant. And then I woke up in the middle of the night one night. So it was very early on um, with the most excruciating pain I have literally ever felt. Mm. Um, I had an epidural during both my pregnancies, not to, not to skip forward, but, but like truly it was the most one, some of the most severe pain I've ever felt and realized I was having a miscarriage. And so mm. before that I was, I was almost unsure whether I was fully convinced I wanted to have a kid. Like we decided, okay, let's try. And like, let's see. And then after that, I was like, wait, this is something I want. And now I'm realizing that it was something I could have had and my body didn't take and what's happening. And I didn't even know I was pregnant. And and there was so much strange, ambiguous, um, I don't know, shock and grief at the same time that I, I didn't have the words to express. And, you know, we come from, um, Abby in particular, comes from a very medically oriented family. There's lots of doctors in his family. And, and the incredible thing about doctors is they can make you feel very safe, but they can also kind of miss out on the emotional experience of what you're going through. So anyways, I talked to sister about it. She's like, oh yeah, that does sound like a miscarriage at like our nephew's fifth birthday party the next day. And then I got pregnant again. Um, This time I knew it. We had that cute moment of like sitting on the edge of the bathtub Mm -hmm. and taking the pregnancy test. And then it was positive and we took this beautiful walk around Brooklyn and the sun was shining and I spent $8 on a turmeric latte that I've like (laughs) drank my whole life from my mom's cupboard. Um, And then I had a miscarriage again. And I had that miscarriage right as I was about to go back to work or sorry, right as I had 
just joined mechanism. Hmm. Um, I was coming in in this big role. I was coming in to really lead our biggest client at the time. And I was supposed to leave for research that morning. And I started miscarrying probably around 3 a.m. And I was bleeding a little bit that day, but I was like, spotting can be normal. Like, you know, and they don't tell you how common bleeding can be. I think like one in five or something women bleed throughout their pregnancy, which I'll get to, but I had another miscarriage and it was, it was a horrific experience. I couldn't decide whether I should still go on my work trip, which obviously in retrospect is absolutely atrocious. And I wouldn't wish that on anybody. And it was nobody other than myself that was putting that pressure on me. Um, and then my experience with the doctor, uh, one of the male doctors um, at Mount Sinai in New York was just awful, like completely void of any emotion. You know, I'm like laying on this table with my legs spread, like sobbing in pain. And he's like slapping my legs, like literally slapping my knees, being like, keep your knees apart, keep your knees apart. Mm -hmm. And it was just this insane conflict between what I was going through internally and what how the external environment around me was responding to it. And then he was like, okay, yes, there's nothing in there. Like you've had a miscarriage. And then he sent me out to the billing department and they're like, congratulations on your pregnancy. And I was like, I'm going to throw up. Like it was just horrible. And then I got pregnant with my daughter, Ajna. And um, it was a very hard pregnancy. I bled the, until I was like 24 weeks pregnant and it started right around like 10 weeks, which is when my previous miscarriage had happened. And, um, I went to the doctor and they're like, okay, this is a threatened miscarriage. And I was like, what the fuck is a threatened miscarriage? (laughs) Like now I have to think about that. Um, And the whole time I was just like filled with fear. Yeah. And also the whole time, which we'll get to later in this episode, I hope, Lindsay, is the whole time I was working. Wow. And this was pre-COVID. And I was getting my ass up but on the subway and going to the office every day. Um, And so, you know, I, I... Previous to all of this, I just would have never anticipated how difficult the whole thing would have been. Yeah. And before I got pregnant with Ajna, actually, we went on a huge kind of fertility journey because I Mm. had had miscarriages and I wasn't getting pregnant again. And at the time, my mom had also gotten diagnosed with ovarian cancer. And so we're like, is it something to do with that? Like, it was just so much rolled into one thing. Um, so 
that's why this research for me was just, I feel like so much of the healing I needed, mm. um, when I read the report, when I talked to you, when I listened to the podcast episodes that you had, which we'll link here, um, I just like sobbed because I didn't have anyone to talk to, you know, I'm not going to go to my friends who have never had babies and be like, this is what I'm experiencing. And also until you experience something like that, it's very, very hard unless you are a researcher like yourself and you've immersed yourself in this mindset and experience. It's very hard to actually have a conversation with someone about it. Yeah. A hundred percent. Um, yeah. I mean, I, first I just want to say like, it's, it's the second time I've heard this story since we we interviewed you as part of this research but like oh it like guts me every time I just like I think um that dissonance even between like what you were going through in your internal experience and then how the environment and and people in your environment were responding to you just like (laughs) makes me like filled with rage um but I also think that's a like that's a product of this you know a lot of this the way the system works and um and I think that you know I'm I'm very happy to hear you kind of say that about the work because I think one of the one of my dreams for the piece was that like it's very easy to talk about these things in very sterile terms like even even the research that's being done on it within the medical field and within academia you know it's it's very clinical and like yeah, that's the nature of that kind of work. But I think that the numbers, even even labels like uh, depression or baby blues or postpartum, they put such yes. distance between what it feels like and that like the internal experience of someone going through that. And um, and and you know, like I think a lot of a lot of doctors see so much there that a wall has to come up, um, and it can make it really hard to let to let that experience in. Um, but I think it's, it's so important for us to understand just what that feels like. Yes, absolutely. And I'm so curious to hear, you know, in your words, what you felt like were the most kind of staggering elements of the research, um, or even just what personally really affected you that you learned. Yeah. These interviews were like, we've done interviews on some really intense subjects, but um, I don't think I've ever been as like affected by them as I was. Mm -hmm. I'm going to cry just thinking about it. Um, Yeah. They were some of the hardest interviews of, of my career. Um, Cause I just think like uh, I, it was probably about a, a year or two ago where I started to realize that I had a very dramatic experience that made me realize I wanted to be a mother. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I didn't know anything about pregnancy. I hadn't paid attention to the subject. Um, and and so I think sitting down with these women and having um, having these conversations, some of them just like tore my heart out. I think when you when you listen to what it what it felt like at times to, experience the kind of fear that comes up with miscarriage to experience um the depression that can come from a loss of identity you know we talked to a lot of women who were struggling with like 
a lot of financial problems, were struggling with their relationships, mm-hmm. and they just felt so al- alone with their feelings of, of, of fear and um, and even just the physical experience that was happening and the emotional experience that was happening. And, you know, people told us things like, I felt trapped inside of a box. I felt like I was screaming inside for emotional and physical support in ways that I couldn't describe. Mm. Um, and when you hear that, you're like, oh, <laughs> this isn't yeah. like, like depression doesn't really like capture <laughs> the idea of you feel like you're screaming inside for support that you can't get. Mm-hmm. Um and I think what was shocking is, is it was, it was everyone, like every, every race, every class, like everyone felt this way. And of course, like, you know, the more you layer on issues of race and, and yeah. class, like the feelings and the experience gets a lot more intense, Yeah. but it, it was like jarring to me that even people of a lot of, a lot of privilege, uh, still feel the same way, still feel deeply lonely in this experience, still feel, um, you know, at times like they are, they are losing themselves and they don't know what to do. And, um, I like some of these interviews, I would just like finish. And I like, I had to take the day off. I I just went in the shower to like sob because I think it, it just, it's one of those things where it just, nothing gives me more rage than when you feel people are suffering in a way and alone in a way that doesn't seem like we have to be like, this is an experience that women have gone through for for millennia and and the idea that like we're doing it with all of the resources and developments and technological strides that like our society has we're still doing it in ways that people feel so alone um was just like maddening um yeah maddening I am right there with you it has been going through the experience of getting pregnant, miscarrying, having conversations around fertility and, and both, um, in an emotional sense, but also it, you know, from the standpoint of insurance companies and the healthcare system. And then of course, you know, going through the experience of actually mothering in America and, um, experiencing, uh, probably not the most severe postpartum depression. Like, thank goodness I I never had suicidal thoughts or thoughts about hurting my my child. But truly, you know, I have never felt that way. And I have never been more afraid that I would never feel okay again. Mm. And <laughs> my postpartum depression uh, just this last time around, I have a almost eight month old, uh, coincided with exactly when I went back to work mm-hmm. and same with my first, um, with Ajna, it was, I had more of an anxiety manifestation than a depression, although they, they usually coexist, but it completely changed the fabric of my identity and it completely changed what I care about. Mm. And so much started to feel flippant and superficial and superfluous because I realized that women, women of color, 
women who are struggling financially. And, you know, we say women because that is the most common experience of pregnancy and motherhood. But, you know, take that and expand it to your own definition of of people who can have pregnancies and babies. It's just, it's horrific to live, again, as you said, Lindsay, in such an advanced, modern, first world country and have the lack of infrastructure, the lack of uh, collective mindset, the lack of um, community and camaraderie and support that mothers in America experience. It's devastating. It is. And I think that like that dissonance you're talking about, like we, you know, in the research, we studied that dissonance of what it's like to have this experience that's deeply emotional, often deeply spiritual, and then walk Mm -hmm. into the healthcare system. Right. And like to have that experience you had at the billing department, which is like, we heard that all the time that like the billing, the, the billing department moment after something like very devastating or difficult happened mm. um but that that like dissonance where like you're having this full body full emotional full spiritual experience and then you walk into this environment that only sees the physical body and yeah um and it can be so hard to pull that experience into that doctor's office room or into the OBGYN or um in a way that gets seen and heard and felt and um and and cared for but I think the workplace is the exact same like mm-hmm. dissonance where like you have had this full body full psychological transformation and you walk back into this place where like there's not even a language often to to talk about that um and yeah. to and to see that um and to, and to feel that transformation and um how isolating that yeah. is There is another aspect of this um, that I think is worth bringing up, which is also the lack of trust that is put into the person having the experience. Mm -hmm. Um, My experience was challenging and I don't want to downplay it. It was. Um, But in the last few years, I've I've gone through experiences with friends that have been incredibly traumatic. Um, you know, finding out that their their baby has like a life-threatening genetic disorder, you know, at 18 weeks, which is half halfway through a pregnancy. I had both my mm-hmm. kids before 38 weeks. So 18 weeks is... <laughs> right at the tail well right at the middle yeah um where you think you're safe right because everyone says if you've made it first the uh past the first trimester you're good yeah and um for one of them in particular she knew something was wrong mm. and it wasn't because she was bleeding or you know it was an ambiguous instinct of hers that something was wrong. And, you know, something did come up in her um, NIPT, which is some of the genetic testing they do early on. And the doctor was like, this shows up sometimes. It usually resolves itself. I wouldn't worry. You're youngish, you know, like it'll be fine. 
And it was, I think the third doctor she went to was finally like, oh, wait, maybe something is happening. And this is when all of the Roe v. Wade conversation was everywhere. And she needed to decide whether she was going to terminate the pregnancy or carry the pregnancy to term, not knowing whether her, um, sorry, this is so hard to talk about. Um, not knowing if her baby would be brain dead. Mm. And, um, just going through that experience with her was like one of the most devastating things in general. And then to have it against the backdrop of this fucking Roe v. Wade conversation where she was like, I also need to like make a decision because the cutoff in New York for abortion is 22 weeks. And it, it, it was, I don't know. I don't have the words for it, but there's also such a dismissal of what we know to be true in our bodies, you know, and we, we spoke a bit, Lindsay, like when you were originally doing the research, I think I reached out and I was like, did you um, slice and dice the data by uh, women of color? Because, you know, this is even more so the case among um, the black population. Yeah. Just this like complete, yeah. Dismissal of this very intimate bodily thing that like only you could fucking know. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like how, who are these people to tell you what you are experiencing and the transactional by the book element of how we deal with or how we manage pregnancy in this country and yeah. beyond, of course, but we are in America and we know that American experience best is just, it's truly devastating. Um, and that takes me to um, something that you said in the fourth episode of the Invisible Weight podcast, which was that the DSM, the Diagnostic and St- Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, speaks in the language of signs and categories, not in the language of pain or not in the language of the heart. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's like one of those like existential challenges with the medical field is you have a whole body of people who who were trained in this different language, this language of categorizing things and measuring things. And it's very, you know, of the head and not, and not of the heart, but that's not how, that's not how people work. (laughs) Um, And I think if, if we have this, you know, this is a personal belief, but I just don't think you can, you can't, you can't treat people as those parts of them are separate, but I think the, you know, the medical system is still struggling with bifurcating the person of, uh, of the there's there's the body and there's the heart and they are separate and and they're not and and I think the the, the language we use the way we talk to people um I've loved that that quote wasn't even mine it came from a uh one of my favorite writers is uh is Gabor Mate and he writes yeah, a lot about he's incredible he's awesome um and one of his biggest missions is is to try to make people feel that 
feel the human story and the human suffering behind a lot of these things. Cause I think if we can't, if we can't do that, you know, just, just making someone feel seen in their suffering when they show up in that, in that room can have a tremendous impact. And I, um, you know, I think as we saw in that research, not only is that not happening, but, um, but, but a majority of, of pregnant Americans don't even feel comfortable to bring those parts of them mm. into the doctor's office. Mm. Um, and, and especially black Americans, um, because of the history. Um, and, and that's a problem. It's a huge problem because then you're not being fully honest with the doctor. The doctor is not, not understanding what's fully going on. And, um, and that emotional side of the experience is having a huge impact on the physical experience. And it just, it creates, it creates a mess, um, a mess of communication and, um, and so much what feels to me like unnecessary suffering, um, because there's like two different languages being spoken. Yeah. And what's so interesting about this is, again, my husband's sister, um, her and I are very close. We both just had our second babies. We had our first babies around the same time. She is, um, she's a urogynecologist, but she's obviously trained in all of the OBGYN skill sets. And she does it because she loves it. Like Mm. she is so passionate about it. She's excellent, excellent, excellent at what she does. And her and I got into a debate one time because um, I wrote something about how after I had Ajna and I had really bad pelvic floor issues, the the, um, OBGYN I was seeing, which was different because I had to flee New York because of COVID and have my baby in Cleveland, Ohio with my parents. <laughs> That's a story for another time. Um, but the doctor, when I went to her with all these pelvic floor issues, she said to me, she's like, honestly, I'm because she's like, everything looks fine. It looks like you're healing. Okay. She's like, I think this is in your head. She's like, have a few glasses of wine and just have sex with your husband because like you also can't keep him waiting. And I was just like, whoa, it was like, (laughs) it was just such a moment of like, I feel like I'm in bizarro land. But I had a really interesting conversation with my sister-in-law because I was so hurt by that. And she was like, this is not the experience that people have with every OBGYN. She's like, we cannot generalize. We cannot um, say one person's experience is everyone's experience. And people get into this field because they deeply care about this work. I mean, becoming an an OBGYN is no fucking joke. Like (laughs) it's a lot of work. but you also say in your research that it's not practical to have the OBGYN take on the full onus. And so, yes, there are absolutely flaws in the current medical system, um, especially when it comes to like healthcare and insurance and sort of the transactional nature of things like the human body. Yeah. Um, but also there should be some sort of tangential not tangential, actually, adjacent support system 
that is right there to support the heart just as much as we're supporting the body. And that felt really fair to me, um, Mm -hmm. that assessment of things, because no one person, no one industry, no one category can do everything. Yeah. But we have just overinvested as a society in this very single-minded, scientific, bodily way of thinking. And so we've truly missed half of the entire human experience. Yeah, 100%. I think that's... um I think that's the perfect way to say it, but like, you know, cause we, we, we spoke to OBGYNs in a lot of this research and like, there's so many like great people who are like trying their best and it's a, it is a tough job. Like, you know, they have 10 minutes with every patient. They have quotas to me. They have two patients in every room. Like the rates of, um, you know, the rates of lawsuits of OBGYNs, they are the one, one of the most sued professions in society. Um, and so the, the pressure, the pressure is really intense and, um, and to ask them to add another job onto all of those other jobs is, is a lot and potentially impossible for one, like one human being. And so, um, yeah, I think the idea of thinking about it is like, how do we, um, how do we bring in support for that other, other side of the experience? And that like, we've just, we've missed 50% (laughs) of the experience is like the perfect way, the perfect way to frame it. And, um, and there are a lot of like fascinating models being experimented with of like actually integrating therapists and psychologists into the OBGYN practice in a way that also helps you kind of, uh, sidestep around some insurance stuff and, um, and make things more affordable. Cause that's, you know, obviously a huge, uh, you know, it'd be great to just say everyone gets a therapist, uh, when they're having a baby, but, uh, but right now the, um, the reality of that is really tough. Uh, therapists are like, there's like a huge shortage. Insurance is a mess. Like there's just, there's mess upon mess upon mess and and thinking through that. And, um, and so that, you know, when we were kind of contemplating solutions to this, there are, there are obviously really interesting models, but some of the things that I'm like most interested even are just like, can we, can we develop better, like, scripts for each other and how to like talk because I I do think like obviously there's a level of like professional support that that is necessary but I even think the idea of like having better scripts um when you are interacting with someone who is pregnant um could be huge you know there's so many like small ways we sort of minimize the experience um or we make it difficult for someone to tell us what they're really going through and I I call this um this like dynamic but like how's mama because a lot of times like uh-huh. uh people would tell us like you know it's not that their OB didn't ask at all but sometimes they would ask how they were doing in a way that just felt really flippant they'd be like how's yeah. mama and you're like <laughs> well I'm not gonna like gut myself open after that <laughs> um or the term like baby blues right like it's like so cheery and upbeat and like <laughs> it is so um, true it, it does not fully address that like deep dark um experience that a lot of these people are going through which your research really poignantly um brings to light yeah yeah um thank you for saying that um but yeah so I like I I think there's like 
there's a, there's a lot that can be done like individual to individual. And, you know, one of the reasons why I love, I love this podcast and I love the kind of things that you talk about online is, you know, one of the things we heard in one of these interviews, which oh, is one of my favorite stories. I was talking to this woman who was just telling me about like what a difficult pregnancy she was having. And, and um, she said she was at work one day and a coworker who had recently had a baby came up to her and was like, Hey, listen, I'm going to give you some advice. Uh, there's going to come a day after you have this kid that you're going to want to put this kid in a bush and run away. Uh, and she's like, know that that is a normal feeling, but when you yeah. feel that way, like ask for help. And she was like, that day came and I felt that way. And I wanted to leave my baby in a bush and I knew that I needed help. And I reached out and I was like, that's such a that's such a beautiful way to like support each other. Um, And that is both like very real, I think, and really like just has like the realness of the experience, but is also so supportive. And it is. um, And I feel like if we can all share our baby in the bush stories a little (laughs) bit more. (laughs) I have so many, please come to me, reach out. Um, You said something that I want, us to kind of build on um, for the next part of the conversation, which is that we can't expect OBGYNs to do two jobs. Mm. But after eight weeks, 12 weeks, 16 weeks, we are expecting working mothers to do two jobs. And often while they are still reeling from the experience of having a child potentially still experiencing either residual postpartum depression, anxiety, or like in my case, a very newfound postpartum depression and anxiety. Um, And I just want to explore that with you because of anyone I know, you probably have one of the most expansive understandings of this mindset and not in a way that is either clouded or enhanced by your own personal experience yet. Um, but in a way that a true researcher and a true strategist looks at an issue and finds an opportunity. So can you just just riff with me for a second. So we come back to work. (laughs) We've experienced these difficult and dark feelings that have not been normalized. Uh, We don't have emotional care. The physical care actually stops after six weeks, um, even though the physical experience does not stop after six weeks. Many people are still breastfeeding or attempting to breastfeed, feeding breast milk, pumping. Like I just, I want to understand from your point of view, you know, we talked a little bit about the emotional support in the medical system, but are there ways that have crept up in your mind that we can also start to bring these learnings into the workplace? That's a great question. That is a great question. And I, I don't know if I have a great answer yet, but I, um, often when I think about like how to better hold 
intense emotional experiences in like traditionally professional environment because that's that part of the problem is just the dissonance right that like you're having this very very real human experience and you've yeah. got grief and you've got suffering you've got happiness you've got joy and you've got you're having all these big feelings and you're walking back into this environment that tends to flatten all of those um because they don't seem quote-unquote professional right Mm -hmm. which is kind of it's nuts right especially in our industry when like our entire jobs are to understand the human experience and how to speak to that um and you know like and I haven't been to this personally but I'll just tell you a quick story because I think I it was after our conversation I had this experience of like uh um I I went to Cannes for the first time this year, but I went off the back of um, one of my, one of my best friends, like lost her father almost like the night before I flew out. Um, And like, it brought up so much grief for her and her experience, but also like made me wrestle with a lot of my own, uh, my own feelings around my dad. And I just like walked in so raw having like, you know, like overnight just ran into the, uh, death and mortality and like <laughs> it's just kind of like in the middle of processing all those feelings and I walk into this like industry event right wow and I just like I couldn't I was like losing my mind I like I couldn't handle the panels I like everything yeah. just felt so shallow um and I was just like in this porta potty like sobbing <laughs> oh, oh my god um and I happened to um have just caught a speaker who was um who like one of the only speakers I feel like I saw there that um, was talking about a really tragic moment in her life. And she happened to be going to the bathroom at the same time and like found me in the porta potty, like <laughs> just crying. And um, she just like looked me in the eye and like, was like, I, like, I understand how you feel. Um, and that moment was just so lovely to just have someone see that experience in this environment that that couldn't because it wasn't built it wasn't built for that um and and so yeah like I I think the idea of just letting that experience be seen and you know I don't know how we formalize that you know I don't know how you institutionalize that Mm. um but I think creating some kind of way in which that experience can be seen and acknowledged and um and even to like pull someone aside and be like what are you, what are you going through right now? Like, what is this like? And, um, you know, I also think there should probably be like rage rooms in, uh, offices yeah. for mothers. You know, you're the second person that said that. You're the second person that said that. We need rooms to go feel our feelings at work. Yeah. 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 Where you can just be alone and maybe break some shit for a second. Oh my God. That's so funny. Okay. So that is a takeaway. That is a formal way. According to you and Stephanie Redletter, who is also amazing. <laughs> um, you know, it's so interesting because there may not be a way to formalize or institutionalize, but I think that's only because formalizing inherently means mm. doing something more buttoned up and yeah. surface level and um, put together. And none of this shit is put together. Like none of this shit is buttoned up. This is actually about unbuttoning and just like, whew, letting it all, (laughs) letting it all go. And so that story about Can, which 
good god i've had two of the most like my can experiences have been wacky <laughs> as well um and i felt exactly the same way the second time i went to can that you were feeling because my mom was like going through chemo and really really unwell and i was like what the fuck am i doing here you know you're like, like this is matters. crazy um but can also has amazing parts anyways that aside you know being able to just bring it's going to sound so simplistic and people are going to be like duh but being able to just have moments of humanity in the workplace like if if someone seems off text them on the side or slack them or whatever and be like hey like you good if not like let me know I'm happy to talk and for god's sake like just be more vulnerable like and that that's like the entire point of everything I do yeah and that's just I, I was just say I, I love it I was like I I you know I tell like new people who joined nonfiction that like I cry on the phone with Gunny uh our co-founder oh, yeah probably once a week like maybe sometimes twice a week like that's amazing it's all the time uh and I think like I think that's good like it is good <laughs> I hope you're not like sorry I'm crying I hope yeah. you're just like hey I know I, I used to apologize that for I'm it. crying <laughs> I, I used to apologize for it and now like god during the pregnancy project I would be like I just need to call you and cry like can I just call you and cry yeah um and I I, I like I think it's so important to just do that for each other and then yeah, you get that release is. and then you feel more free and you can go back to to getting shit done but I think like not being able to make space for that and having to push those emotions aside is also what what makes it so hard to continue you can you can do both I think if you can if you can have the room to express that that human messy side of yourself yeah that's that makes me actually understand something I haven't understood before like with this podcast coming out people have been like how are you finding the time like how are you finding the time how do you have the mental capacity to like have a job have two kids do a podcast and honest to god I think I have the mental capacity because I don't navigate my world feeling like I need to hold back you know bifurcate yourself yeah like I'm not expending energy and cognitive load trying to be not emotional trying yeah. to be performative trying to be somebody I'm not like if I'm depressed as as hard as that might be for my company to see because I'm a leader at the company and and they'll be like oh shit what do we do if our chief strategy officer is depressed as hard <laughs> as that might be I cannot be any other way yeah yeah and, and I, like, it's funny there, there's even been research on this that like uh, emotional repression is what is what tends to make things uh like it kills your energy level. It kills your cognitive ability. Like in any internal conflict where like you can't, um, you're trying to like squash something. 
actually like lowers your capacity to function. Um, and so it's kind of a, I think it's a gift to model not doing that because it does, it helps you move through everything so much faster. Um, and then you can show up more fully all these places. If you can, if you can both be the professional Ambika and the depressed Ambika and the depression lifts so much faster. <laughs> Those are the two me's, the professional Ambika and the depressed one. That's so funny. But you do that too. Like. If you follow Lindsay on social media, oh no, I love it. <laughs> I'm gonna cry again. I don't know. I love it because you are so you. Hmm. At least I, I, you know, and I'm seeing you from the outside, right? I'm very much on the outside looking in, but you exude this deep sense of self you let us in on those moments of joy however fast or fleeting they may be you're dancing in the streets you're like like it is so beautiful to see thank you <laughs> and so lot. you're doing it too like my expression is is a harder darker expression right now because that's the phase of life I'm in and that's what my experience is these days but you seem to be in a place of a lot of joy and you said to me you know before we started recording that you're redoing your apartment like you you're making <laughs> your external world match your internal world yeah. versus trying to fit your internal world into your external world and that is perfection yeah, well, thank you for saying that and noticing that. Uh, joy is not a was not a, an emotion that I could feel for a long time, and so I think yeah. like uh, being able uh, as someone who was years in the darkness, um, mm -hmm. trying to embrace the other side, I think is I'm learning to try to do with, <laughs> with equal gusto. But yeah, um, but yeah, well, maybe maybe that'll be our next conversation <laughs> about joy because God knows that's what a lot of us need in our life these days yeah. so follow Lindsay on social media <laughs> for little doses of joy they also say um, the more you can feel the darkness the more you can feel the light uh, yeah I'm really hoping that is true I'm really hoping that's true but thank you so much Lindsay this was an amazing conversation thank you Amika. I, I really appreciate you it. and all the work you are putting out into the world is just phenomenal and exactly how research and listening and empathy need to be done in this industry. So we appreciate you. Oh, well, I'm so excited to see where this podcast goes. <laughs> it is, uh, oh, it's just like, it's a, it's a balm. It's a balm for my heart. <laughs> well, you can tell we really love each other. <laughs> All right, Lindsay, I'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye. Thank you so much for spending some time today with me and Corner Office Breakdowns. This podcast is such an early morning after work, kids are sleeping, labor of love, and there's nothing I would appreciate more than seeing some love in return. Please like, share, rate, and subscribe to keep this work going. I am so, so, so grateful. Until next time. <laughs>